Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we are, I mean, I guess we're still working through. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time, but we're working. We started that series on revival a long time ago. And and revivalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that then resulted in doing kind of a sub-series of... uh, figures of revival just prominent yeah people and places that were involved with this and so um we started working through the first great awakening uh, and that's what we're technically still in uh and our goal with this is just to bring out some of the historical development of revival but for the goal of seeing how history is is actually critical under understanding how uh contemporary theology and practice has been shaped um so, so last time, as I mentioned, we, we did start the First Great Awakening. We covered two figures there, Edwards and Whitfield. Uh, there were many more that we could talk about, um, but we're, we're choosing to keep it to some of the more well-known people. And it's important that we do it because, like Charles Finney, that you're going to do eventually here, he, he's still much loved by many people in the whole revival world, and yet we would say he's a terrible example of biblical revival. Yeah. Uh, he's actually one of the major proponents of revivalism, which we're against, something that we can kind of bring into being through our own will and actions. And so it's important for people to know that there is nothing new under the sun. And mm-hmm. well, who's that guy that came to town who sings? Oh, uh, uh, Foyt. Yeah. Sean Foyt. Uh, he's an example of that where he just travels around trying to find these movements and and yeah. but but his whole premise is faulty even though you you can respect that he wants to see God work and we would love to see God work but how that wor- works itself out is where the devil is in the details in it and it helps you and I as pastors decide if we are going to join hands with a guy like that Exactly. Um, and so we're hoping that for some of you, that that's what we can do is, as you hear more and more of these figures in, in the history of revivals, you can begin to appreciate that there's a common denominator behind those men who are part of something that was truly of God versus those who manufacture something that we still have the consequences to this day. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of churches that are doing a lot of practices and they don't even know who these figures are yeah. or these, these historical realities which happened. Uh, but they are um, doing what they're doing because essentially they've inherited that um, tradition. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to begin the second Great Awakening. And uh, just to give credit where credit is due, uh, much of these episodes are coming from um, John Woodbridge. And I believe Colin Hansen. Woodbridge was my old professor at Trinity. I've never even heard of him. That doesn't mean anything. No, yeah, he was a, neither did I until I went to Trinity, and then I found out he's a big deal in the in church history. Um, he huh. kind of reminded me of uh, just kind of an old grandpa. Was he a good teacher? He was very story-esque, and he knew everybody. Like, he, he would have <laughs> phone calls with um, uh, Billy Graham and... 
Oh, so he was an old guy that had been around. Oh, yeah. And, He's been teaching at Trinity since like the 70s. So, But his stories were interesting. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my his church history teacher was... I, I worked on my Greek during his class. Yeah. <laughs> it was, oh, man. It was yeah. boring. Um, so I, I kind of envy that. Yeah. Well, some of his stories were good. Mostly he wandered. And, but it was, it was, <laughs> no, I mean, it was story guy. Monday afternoon. It was one of those three and a half hour once a week classes. And you're just like, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, uh, there is a book written, I think it's called God Size Vision, something like that. And it just traces out the history of uh, revival and revivalism, uh, particularly in the U.S. So if you're interested, it'd be a decent book to pick a up. Another book I can recommend is Ian Murray's Revivalism. Yes, that's very good. Um, that's, that's a good book too. Yeah. that If, if you really want to learn, that would be the better one to go to. Uh, oh, really? You think? Yeah. Uh, it's, um, this I never one, read Woodbridge, I, but I found... It's an abri- it's kind of an abridged uh, version of the history of revivals, so it's it's more attainable, but kind of like his lectures, the writing's not very scintillating, so you just kind of slog through it. <laughs> um, so listen to us because we're going to make it so much more. <laughs> um, we're both. <laughs> doing this because we're both looking at our notes and we're like, oh, we're going to try to keep people from crashing into a aqua <laughs> doctor overpass just to put themselves out of misery. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So second great awakening. Um, this ran from about 1790s to roughly the 1840s. And there will be a test on this. Yeah. So this one, uh, almost 50 years, quite a bit longer than the first great awakening, which ran roughly a decade, I want to say. Um, so the primary, a primary location of this second uh, Great Awakening revival was in places such as upstate U- uh, New York. If you're familiar with the history of revival, um, this is a region that be- came to be known as the Burned Over District. And, that, and that's still true to this day. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the Burned Over District, that was a term inspired by Charles Finney. Not in a good way. <laughs> right. Who? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to do with drugs. Um <laughs> uh, he he was a fav- famous revivalist uh, who, as you were saying, he conducted these evangelistic meetings throughout central and western New York. Um, it was a notorious region known for revival and other religious movements. Um, so amid the excitement and all the hype uh, of, of the revival, or I would just say revivalism that was happening, um, there were several false prophets and charlatans that inevitably cropped up to capitalize on the momentum that was happening there. So, for example, a man by the name of William Miller, uh, he excited crowds with his promise that Christ would return between... Is this the Millerites? I don't know. I think it is. I mean, that sounds like it would be. Yeah. <laughs> if you say it with confidence, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, it doesn't... Yeah. Um, and, and is any relation to you? Not that I'm aware of. Um, We're going to be listening more carefully to your sermons, see if there's some false well, stuff. You know going me; there. I'm a newspaper. <laughs> uh, never mind. Uh, okay. Um, so he, he, yeah, he, he would excite these crowds because he was given promises of Christ's return between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Uh, and we have these today, like John Hagee. Yeah, or Hagee. And who's the one that back in like 2012? Um, 
he was the last big one that we had. I don't remember. Uh, there have been C. so many. Um, but like many who claim to predict Christ's return, he, like them, just kept extending that window to the point that his followers just began to fade. Um, and then amid the exuberance again for, for revival that was happening um, and new movements of God and man, um, or a man by the name of Joseph Smith started talking about visions that he was receiving from angels to, of course, reestablish the true church, um, which is how they always talk. Um, after mounting opposition toward his statements, though, in his work, he went public with revelation saying that the angel Morani, uh, Moroni, Moroni, Moroni. You like the, is it? Well, the that's how I? they say it, I believe. Well, then we'll take what they say. Yeah, he left. Uh, I grew up around Mormons. Oh well, then we'll take your word for it. Um, he said that that angel left for Ohio due to the spiritual opposition. So in 1830, then Joseph Smith and his followers went to Ohio, and that of course launched the movement and religion that is known today as Mormonism. There's actually one more you notes don't have. Um, well, there's several, but another one that you would recognize is Mary Baker Eddy yeah. and the rise of Christian science. Because what replaced with that burnt over district, what happened then was this increased interest in uh, the metaphysical. And so what we call the, you, you know that book, The Law of Attraction, um, that's just a warmed over version of Hindu, a type of Hinduism, but also uh, Christian science, and it's that through positive thinking, mm-hmm. um, and it's a, that Chris, you can create this right. alternate reality that you can lay hold of. Uh, it, it's really con- uh, very fascinating, and one day maybe we can even probe into some of that stuff. But all of these came from that whole area, thanks to good old Finney. Yep. Uh, and, and you're right, it, 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 they have the effects of it to this day, very very hardened, very well, anti-God. I almost took a church up there uh, in Rochester, New York, <laughs> and that was one of the issues, was it was, it was part of that burnt-over area, and the hardness, the, I mean, the spiritual opposition um, to anything of Christ up there, it's, it, it's freaky, um, mm-hmm. and it's still to this day. Obviously, the gospel conquers all things, but it's... It, it's weird, and you have to be there to really see it. Anyhow. Yep, yep. Oh, it's my turn. Your turn. I should put my coffee cup down. Um, so, the second Great Awakening started much calmer than the first Great Awakening. Um, revival was reportedly breaking out in the 1790s, and a number of churches in Connecticut began testifying of that experience. At the same time, though, revival was reported breaking out among rugged settlers in the western frontier. Uh, a prominent place which this took place was Cane Ridge, Kentucky, which is funny because I don't think of that as the frontier being a westerner. I always think of right. Montana or something like that. But yeah, Kentucky was... Um, you're, you're west. Oh yeah, go west. Um, you ever grow up watching that old show, Daniel Boone? Mm-hmm. Daniel Boone was a man. He's a real man. No, it was always bananas or gun smoke. Well, those are good, but Daniel Boo, man, I, whew, I wanted a coonskin hat my whole life as a kid. We could still do that for you. Yeah. Mom always said no. In fact, I remember seeing a couple of raccoon kills on the side of the road, and I worked hard at trying to convince Mom and Dad to pull over. Can't let it go to waste. <laughs> and they, they just kept moving. Anyhow, I still to this day will pass one and contemplate 
and and then I realized I have my wife in the car, and that's not going to go over well. <laughs> Anywho, so uh, Cambridge, Kentucky, where in 1801, up to 25,000 frontier people would gather to hear the gospel preached. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the frontier was popularly known really for fighting, drunkenness, and various forms of immorality. Uh, when that revival broke out, Washington College president, a guy named George Baxter, uh, reported during one of his visits to Kentucky that not even a word of swearing, what? What are you laughing at? Nothing. All right. Uh, that not even a word of swearing came from the rough and wild frontier. Uh, in other words, a dramatic uh, change in the behavior marked a true and genuine revival. That's actually similar to the Welsh revival among the uh, miners. And I think it was brought on with Whitfield. And one of the problems that happened as a result of it was that the little donkeys that would go down into the mines didn't know what to do. They they were so used to being cursed at by the miners, <laughs> and that was what it meant to go up or stop or left or right, and now none of them would cry anymore, uh, uh, curse anymore. And so these donkeys don't know like, what it means, yeah. I don't know what you want me to do now. <laughs> well, I always just find it interesting, you know, a dramatic change in behavior, and it's like they stopped cursing. Uh, it just shows you how far immorality has come in our day. I yeah. mean, is there any sin that has not been pursued? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, one interesting point, uh, many people in churches in the, what was called the refined East, East uh, had their doubts about the Kentucky revival. And you can see that today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what this did was actually signify that the era of the Eastern American dominance in American Christianity was beginning to come to an end. So the 1800s would belong to the upstart Methodist and Baptist churches now on the Western frontier. But before it officially closed, there was still a flare of revival that would strike in the East, and this was led in large measure by a man named Timothy Dwight, who happens to be the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. So this is essentially going to be about him. Yeah. Um, He's the figure we're going to talk about. So uh, just some background, he was, uh, his life ran from 1752 to, that can't be right. Um. Well, I didn't write this. You did. <laughs> I have 1752 to 1870. I'll look it up while you... Uh... That's an old man. Yeah, look him up, will you? Thanks. Um, so he was born in Northampton. Um, his father was a very wealthy landowner and a military officer. And his mother was the third daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. You got the date there? 1752 to 1817. 17. Ah, so I was right with the seven. <laughs> So you're mostly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So (laughs) this is scintillating. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So he. So some more background on him. He uh, he he was a well-liked child. Uh, He inherited his father's social uh, acumen, but uh, he was also incredibly intelligent taking after his mother and his grandfather, got that Edwards side in him. Um, it, it's reported that he learned the alphabet in one sitting from his mother. Because why not? Yeah. It is kind of like Levi. <laughs> can, can you picture having a kid like that, though? So here's your ABCs and just says, okay, so we're going to practice. No, I got that. <laughs> Move on to verbs. Yeah. Um, he, he read through his favorite part of the Bible. Um, <laughs> 
which was the Old Testament historical books. Uh, he did that by the age of four. Uh, he was, check this out, regularly caught disobeying by sneaking <laughs> away to read his parents' books. <laughs> <laughs> and without anyone knowing it, he also taught himself Latin, because why not? <laughs> So, so uh, modeling his grandfather, he enrolled in Yale at age 13. Um, his first two years were marked by procrastination and card playing. Uh, again, great sins. Um, likely due to being un just unchallenged, he was confronted by a tutor uh, who was grieved at seeing such giftedness wasted. His final two years at Yale then marked a changed man. Uh, every morning he would wake up at 3.30 a.m., uh, one hour before chapel began to study Greek. Um, he would be studying by candlelight, and those years actually took a physical toll on his eyesight, which will be important for later. Um, and over the years, his failing eyesight co uh, caused him to suffer just excruciating, painful headaches, as you can imagine. Um, but ironically, that ailment would serve in shaping his future preaching. Uh, he, he modeled his grandfather's propensity to remain rigidly tied to his manuscript, if you know how Jonathan yeah, Edwards yeah. preached, just kept his head down with a, a, apparently a monotone voice. But as a result, his failing eyes uh, then forced him to preach more from his mind and his memory and his heart, which allowed him to connect in a more powerful way with his audiences. Um, and his sermons uh, would still exhibit uh, razor sharp arguments, but now he would deliver them with passion. That's interesting though, because today, the depth of those types of arguments are not tolerated, right? I mean, how long I've been, my last two sermons have been a, an hour and five minutes each time. Um, you know, and you start seeing some people, if they're new, they're starting to look back at the clock about 20 minutes in. Um, you, right. <laughs> it's like, hang on, we're not done with the intro yeah. yet. And then they hear you say, okay, so that's my introduction. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they're like, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, that's just impressive, though. Uh, a tight, carefully delivered message, but also with passion. Mm -hmm. So in 19, or 1795, uh, Dwight returned to Yale, and he ended up becoming the president. Uh, he found the school to be very similar to the state his first two years as a student. It was filled with laxity, gambling, and procrastination. The final two years of the previous president caused the school to really decay. Uh, one of the junior students of Dwight's first year as president, a uh, guy by the name of Lyman Beecher, who actually became a famous pastor, um, described the state of the school to be uh, in the most ungodly state. About uh, Only about 10% of the 125 enrolled students would take the name of Christ. That's just mm -hmm. sad. Um, and yet... I think you go into places like Wheaton and others that are really devolving quickly, and I yeah. think you're going to find a similar thing well, and remember, more and more in this whole world of deconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you remember how those Ivy Leagues, like Yale and uh, some of them started. Um, Yale in particular uh, was founded by those who believed in uh, revival, true revival. Right. So that's why you would go. You'd go there to then be trained as a pastor, as a revival pastor. And that now 
10%. It's already lost. Yeah. yeah. The other 90% then were starting to buy into what's known as the French critique of religion, which was a wave of thinking that was inaugurated actually by the French Revolution. And so as a result, this birthed great concern for Dwight. He knew that if America bought into the radical philosophy that ended up ousting the monarchy and the church leaders in France, then America and the American church was in trouble. Doesn't that sound like today? Um, Beecher observed this. The college church is almost extinct. Most of the students were skeptical and rowdies were plenty. Wine and liquors were kept in many rooms. Intemperance, profanity, gambling, licentiousness were common. I hardly know how I escaped. That was the day of the infidelity of Tom Paine, of the Tom Paine, Thomas Paine school. Uh, boys that dress flax in the barn. Uh, as I used to read Tom Paine and believed him, I read and fought him all the way. I never had any propensity to infidelity, but most of the class before me were infidels and called each other Voltaire, Rousseau, and, and et cetera, these infidel yeah, uh, the philosophers. philosophers of, yeah. Uh, now, now, keep in mind that Yale was founded for the purpose of training pastors who agreed with the First Great Awakening, like Matt just said, which is the reason the students were supposed to be at Yale. <laughs> So Dwight, being quite aware of the great uh, challenge ahead, left his comfortable pastorate in Fairfield, Connecticut, and he moved to New Haven. However, as he discovered how aggressively the apostasy had become, he realized uh, it was a far greater uh, problem than he even imagined. So a few decades earlier, Dwight's grandfather, who was, again, Jonathan Edwards, argued that many of the Northampton I have no idea why I missed this one. This is what it says on my screen. Northampton, and then E-N-M-E-A. <laughs> what the heck were you spelling there? I don't know. I don't know. People in Northampton. Uh, the people of Northampton. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Um, who he believed wasted their time previously lacking any serious pursuit of godliness. He, he would get into heated debates over things like bad books, which famously resulted in him having a diminished authority among the community. Uh, and he was actually eventually ousted. So I, the key thing there, though, is that he was constantly rebuking them. Why are you reading this? Why are you reading that? Um, and they just got tired of hearing yeah. him, kicked yep. him out. In contrast to his father, though, and not wanting to have the same fate, he chose to lead the school with passion and precision. So within the first year, students' behavior reported, uh, was reported to have improved dramatically. Uh, Dwight regularly taught as a professor uh, of theology. He preached every week and personally advised the seniors. And so through this regular interaction, the students got to know him personally and developed a relationship. And so he came to be seen as a model for humility and holiness, which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, instead of holding himself back and being the firm disciplinarian, he, in a sense, became a spiritual father to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, well, through that, the students learned he, he was then a man of uh, great integrity. And so during his first uh, weekly public disputations, uh, the seniors challenged Dwight with a list of debate questions. Uh, and he chose the questions that no students believed that he would choose. Um, and, and the main one being, are the scriptures of the Old and New Testament the word of God? And the answer is yes. So there's a question that you can see coming right out of um, 
you know, modern thinking, which yep. was a direct result of Thomas Paine, Age of Reason, yep. that whole world. Well, and the whole German liberalism was now in there, and I mean, it still is to yep. this day, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so now they're posing these questions. Um, at the time, uh, denying any biblical authority was grounds for termination at uh, Yale. Um, however, under the influence of European philosophy, again, the students began to to doubt the reliability of scripture. So professors weren't admitting this, uh, but the students are having a rousing conversation among themselves about all this. And and the, and it's the same today on on how many campuses they're they're playing the game with CRT and all the other stuff and they're denying actually the absolute authority of the scripture because now we're going to introduce these other things and and it's going to be a wink and a nod, but in reality there's this denying. Yep, yep. Um, so the students at the time, they knew that the faculty avoided any genuine debate over that issue uh, just for fear of termination. So um, challenging Dwight with the question was a, essentially a test by the students. And as a result, by choosing that question, uh, Dwight wanted the students to essentially marshal their best case against the reliability of Scripture. Um, and Dwight, though, he did not assume the seniors personally believed everything about the arguments um, that they were offering for the debate, but he was still determined to genuinely hear them out. Um, and so he had recently published a sermon entitled The Genuineness and Authenticity of the New Testament. Uh, so it was still fresh in his mind. And so when his turn came, he meticulously but ruthlessly just demolished uh, their case and then constructed a well-reasoned defense of uh, uh, biblical authority, essentially. Um, and the students they had no ability to respond to that, and so that resulted in Dwight then preaching six solid months on the question of biblical authority and accuracy. I like that guy. Yeah. He, he, he tears them to shreds, shows them that they never even thought about, and then says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a sermon series. Yeah, now let, let me build the a positive <laughs> yeah, just, case, right? Yeah. Um, in, in 1797, uh, at his uh, baccalaureate address, um, it was titled The Nature and Danger of Infidel Philosophy, um, he, he had addressed that ever-growing challenge against Scripture's authority. Uh, so unlike his grandfather, who uh, just sort of chided anyone who would read, quote, bad books from Enlightenment philosophy, um, Dwight tackled the challenges head-on. Um, and he stated, a gentleman once asked me whether I allowed my children to read the books of infidels, and I told him yes for they must become acquainted with them sooner or later, and while I am living, I can confute the arguments they use. I should be unwilling to have them find these arguments uh, unawares with nobody to meet them. Um, perhaps there's wisdom in Jonathan Edwards' approach, right? Just stay away from them. Don't read them. It's not good for you. Right. Um, I think there is a wisdom depending on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but he was also dealing with fools, right? Yeah. Um, and Dwight understood this. So instead of chiding them as fools, <laughs> uh, he sought to address their questions as genuine. And, and so then instead of being dismissed like his grandfather was, he was respected and gained influence. But this was also a day, remember, when modernism was creeping in and people wanted to hear rational, well-articulated, thought-through arguments. Yeah. Today we live in postmodernism post where you can't genuinely racist. Yeah, it's just this sort of feelings-oriented, yeah. live your truth. There's no objective standard by which we can all measure arguments or anything like that. So 
I'm not certain his tactic would work today. I don't think so. I do th- think that uh, also your listeners could be hearing you say what he chose to do about, you know, children, allowing my children to read the books of infidels. Uh, you know, I'll just reread that. I told him yes, for they must become acquainted with them sooner or later. And while I am living, I can confute the uh, arguments of youth. That's the part I think a lot of parents forget is they're like, well, yeah, no, I want them to be aware of these things. But then the parents aren't even remotely equipped to challenge and talk. Uh, you know, they, they passively just allow their children to read it and think somehow that they're capable of figuring out what is wrong. Um, right. So before you guys all start saying, well, yeah, see, that's why I, I read my graphic novels on blah, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, are you even remotely equipped to address the underlying presuppositions of those books? If you're not, you probably shouldn't read them. Right. Uh, but, but if you have people that you know who are reading those things, you don't have to just tell them to stop. But, but you do need to understand what the arguments are and then understand how you're going to ad- address that. Uh, that's a huge issue for, I think, faithful pastors. Yeah. So in 1797, a revival finally reached Yale. Signs of revival began to emerge when a group of 25 students founded what was called the Moral Society of Yale. It was actually a secret society. The members pledged to hold one another accountable in small groups, actually something similar to the Wesley's Holy Clubs at Oxford. Many of the seniors actually began to once again publicly profess Christian belief. Uh, Dwight believed that revival foreshadowed the time when Jesus would return and reign. And so he defined revival as a time when considerable numbers become subjects of piety within a brief period of time. Actually, that's why it's because he was a post-millennialist. So he believed that there would be that golden age of the church um, he believed then that only God could send revival, and he pulled this from 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. He taught that divine agency and human responsibility correspond. Some plant, some water, but God gives the growth. P- preachers must always preach, but God alone can make those means effective. But that fits very much what we've been doing when we were working through revival. The means of revival is God's sovereign will. But what we must do is always be reforming through the biblical teaching of truth. Right. Right? I mean, so you're like, I want God to move. Well, ask him. But in the meantime, preach. Right. If he doesn't move, you're still better off than, than yeah. where you started. It's far cry from setting up a tent and saying we're doing revival tonight. And, and, and introducing gold dust into the air conditioning vents. Right. Uh, then by 1802, uh, a third of Yale student body, which was about 230 students, uh, began to profess faith in Christ. So freshman, we're going to go with Heman Humphrey, uh, remembered the revival as, in, as a mighty rushing wind. And so he stated the whole college was shaken. It seemed for a time as if the whole mass of the students would press into the kingdom. It was the Lord's doing and marvelous in all eyes. Oh, what a blessed change. It was a glorious reformation. It put a new face upon the college. It sent a thrill of joy and thanksgiving far and wide into the hearts of its friends who had been praying that the waters of salvation might be poured into the fountain from which so many streams were annually sent out. Um, so the, the revival uh, had begun inconspicuously with a small band of students meeting weekly for several months to pray that God would visit Yale um, the way he was visiting it in the frontier. 
Uh, there were a few isolated experiences that turned into a clearly discernible trend. And so by the end of the year, uh, 58 more students joined the college church. Throughout that time, Dwight would regularly meet with the students to pray with them. Students previously hid their faith were now become, becoming public with it, and others who merely watched from the sidelines now joined uh, the awakening. And so Dwight, reflecting back on that time, said this. He said, those were memorable days, such triumphs of grace, none whose privilege it was to witness them had ever before seen. So sudden and so great was the change in individuals and in the general aspect of the college that those who had been waiting for it were filled with wonder as well as joy, and those who knew not what it meant were awestruck and amazed. Wherever the students were found in their rooms, in the chapel, in the hall, in the college yard, in their walks about the city, the reigning impression was surely God is in this place. The salvation of the soul was the great subject of thought, of conversation, of absorbing interest. So when the students then return from vacation in 1802, Dwight had noticed that the revival continued even stronger and it was more settled. And the number of students transformed had grown from 50 uh, to 80 and then more. Um, and so the revival fires eventually flickered out, but the awakening uh, left a very long legacy at Yale. Um, 30 students, uh, which was half the senior class, entered pastoral ministry. Um, and then in the next four years following the 1802 revival, a total of 69 graduates went to serve in local churches. Uh, the previous four years had only seen a mere 13 hmm. total enter the pastorate. All right, so by 1808 now, Yale had already lost most of that awakening fervor that characterized the students we just described in back in 1802. Uh, there were but a few small groups that professed Christ, and most of the school had once again slipped back into its worldliness, which is sad, but you see it repeated time and time again. Um, however, the surrounding community was still buzzing with revival, and this contrast burdened Dwight. And so as a result, one night during evening prayers, Dwight's demeanor was reportedly uh, suddenly changed. And so it, it's written this way. The chapter was read with an altered love uh, tone. The hymn was recited with a faltering accent. And when he joined the choir, as was his custom, his usually loud and sonorous voice became weak and tremulous. He sang, but a single stanza and stopped. Next came the prayer. President Dwight was always remarkable uh, for humility of manner in prayer, even when his lofty mind rose amid the inspirations of a near approach to God, and his language became, as it often became uh, on such occasions, sublime. He was always humble and abased, but on that evening, it seemed that he was, um, it seemed as if he, sub if the subduing power of the gospel was doubly upon him. There was such an apparent coming down such an obvious holy prostration of the soul, prostration of the soul, forgive me, as in, indicated by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God was with him. The burden of his prayer was an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God in the dispensation of his grace. And yet he, had, he made that solemn truth the foundation of one of the most appropriate arguments ever presented to a throne of mercy for revival of religion. Never did a minister plead more fervently for his people, never a father more importunately, that's a hard one for me saying, 
say, for his children than he did for his pupils before him. This was a man by last name of Goodrich who was a student. He was actually eventually a professor of rhetoric there. So the following day, Dwight preached from Luke 7, 11 through 15, about Jesus raising the dead son of the widow in Nain, uh, where Jesus gives the sovereign command, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he compared the spiritual state of the school to the dead man as he was being carried away. He preached, by this I mean that all such youth are impotent, um, impenitent, unbelieving sinners, It is not here, indeed, merely that you are impenitent and unbelieving. It is further intended that you are permanently of this character, that you are fixed and obstinate, that you have a hard heart and a blind mind, a a heart hard and a mind blind in its very nature. You are not casually sinners, yielding to sudden and powerful temptation in the weak, unguarded hour, and in the circumstances peculiarly, oh, I can't say that, my my speech impediment won't do it, peculiar, you say it for me. Peculiarly. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say it. Um, I I literally can't. Uh, Dangerous. You are sinners of design, of contrivance, with premeditation from habitat, a habit, and without mixture. Do you receive this charge as untrue, as unkind, or even as doubtful? Look back, I beseech you, upon the whole course of your lives, and tell me if you can remember a single day in which you have faithfully obeyed God, believed in the Redeemer, or repented of your sins. Ow. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's a pastor who's just, yeah. (laughs) Just laying it out there. And he looks out there, and he's weeping, and he's yearning for that. Um, from there, Dwight began preach, uh, then preached the necessity of the cross where they might find salvation. And he proclaimed, he, Jesus, died with the complete foreknowledge of all the guilty and the grossness which I have rehearsed. Yet he died. The spirit of grace began to strive with the same foreknowledge of the same guilt. Still he strives with you. Still with a voice sweeter than that of an angel's. He whispers to you, da- to you daily, turn ye, turn yet. Why will you die? It is, therefore, no unreasonable thing to hope that notwithstanding the blessings which you have abused have been very great, notwithstanding your sins are of no com- uh, common die. Common die, of no common die. Christ may still extend mercy to some of your number and may say to one and another, Young man, arise. The result was then a calm spread of revival from student to student over the next few weeks. There was a reported outbreak characterized by introspection rather than emotional outbursts. As Dwight would meet with the students, he was very slow to interject his own opinion of whether true transformation had taken place within that student. Rather, he asked whether the young man was prepared to serve God. Uh, Dwight long recognized the tendency of emotional awakenings that would swing from exuberant joy to grace doubt, meaning, I guess, doubt in God's grace, right? Uh, So he looked for the evidence of conversion in daily living rather than in private spiritual feelings. He remarked, genuine religion transforms the whole person. Uh, 
And so a third then revival broke out in 1812 to 1813, and it affected about 180 students after a few faithful Christians had committed themselves to praying together. Even students who normally oppose any notion of revival couldn't remain unaffected. Yeah. So what was uh, Dwight's legacy then? Well, first, he was another model of what God will use if God desires revival. Um, He was characterized with what's often seen during times of revival. Um, when the word of God is far out of season, God then raises up a person who has that unique burden and fervency to see the gospel do a true transforming work. And the result is that he would pray, uh, he would then plow the soil, but then remain faithful to a call or to call the people to genuine repentance. Second, he showed very deep humility. Um, So again, he didn't berate or chastise or ridicule these people who were rejecting Um, and showing great folly. Rather, he approached their questions honestly, and he sought to thoughtfully engage with them at a personal level. Um, And so he was building trust and showed those among whom he had influence a sincere care. Now, I would say there's probably many lessons in that for us today. I just think about how we'll look at something that is genuine folly, but then we'll make a meme out of it and throw it on Facebook. And then, you know, Whereas he just refused to do stuff like that. He's like, no, I'm going to develop actual relations with these people, show them I care for them, love them. And he's like, I'm going to just do it differently. Well, and then flip that around the other way, and you see how so many of the so-called revivalists of today, it's really the show. Right. Um, It's not that intimate, close relationship that he's building as a pastor to these people who are sheep, and they need a shepherd. Um, it's it's all in the in the brand and the message and and the show light show and the music and everything else, uh, and it's all manufactured rather than just that simple pastoral care, I guess. Right, right. Um, so he he served as president there until 1817, uh, when he eventually died of prostate cancer. The lasting effect of his ministry was truly revival at Yale, that eventually spread to Dartmouth and then. Princeton. Um, And Yale continued to experience revival long after Dwight had died. And the result was an awakening in the surrounding community of New Haven. Um, The largest revival actually came in 1831, when 104 students became members of the college church and 900 others in New Haven were converted. Um, Which is interesting. It's just, it starts at the school and then it spreads out into the community. Yeah. and and I, I might add the exact opposite is true as well. Um, the lies and the falsehood that's in the schools, eventually they graduate and they infect the community. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that's a, what we're seeing now. Right, exactly. That's good, yeah. So eventually the revivals that Dwight witnessed at Yale would be seen in places such as Asbury and then Wheaton with students who hungered for a vision of God and His holiness and grace. And it is sad because of your comment earlier about Wheaton which is probably very, very true. Yeah. Um, So in conclusion, um, that's just some info on what happened during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, There are other prominent figures, of course, during this time. A major one is Charles Finney, um, but he is coming from a much different perspective. um, And the plan is eventually, uh, 
hopefully to give an episode on him. Uh, so we would say look for that. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Love to hear your thoughts on Revival and the Second Great Awakening. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.